What would you say to someone who knew you were a Bible reader and uh, they asked you the question, what is that book all about? Uh, could you give them an answer? And uh, what would that answer be? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Paul Caminiti, again today with my colleagues, Glenn Powell and Alex Goodwin uh, for the third episode about Alex's new book, The Bible Reset, Alex's manifesto on the deficiencies of the modern Bible's form and uh, how we use it. And, you know, Alex, you speak and, and you're fairly bold about those things, but you don't leave us hanging. Um, there's a hopeful vision for a better way. So in week one, we examined the format of the modern Bible as needing to be reset. Week two, current practices that need to be reset. And uh, today we tackle the third section of Alex's book entitled Story. And it's in this episode that um, we get into the heart of the matter. What exactly is the Bible for? And uh, as we do this, it, it feels a little bit like we're leaving solid ground. Other things were straightforward. Get a reading Bible, get a reading group. And, uh, you know, you don't have to overthink that, by the way. It can be a daughter and a mother, father and a son. Get some some people to start. But now we, we step into some mystery. Um, what exactly is the Bible for? So, Alex, in your book, you write about the fact that people have different values points on that question. And it's really a two-part question, right? Like, what is the Bible? And then what are we supposed to do with it? What are some of the other Bible paradigms that are out there? And then as a follow-up to that, let me just tell you, we kind of want to know what you think the problem is with those. Yeah. And I'll just start off by saying the the Bible Reset book as as a whole is structured kind of starting with the most concrete thing, the Bible's format and, and how we can change that to Something that's a little bit more abstract here in the third part, which is which is the paradigms and the the frameworks that we use when we think about what the Bible is for and um, how it's supposed to be used in our lives. So uh, this this episode here will be getting a little bit abstract and talking about paradigms and frameworks and mental models and those sorts of things. But I think it's just super important for for how we actually um, approach the text and and I'll say apply it to our lives, but. We'll, we'll unpack what that means. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people, again, they never really get shown or taught or modeled kind of a, a mental model or a framework for what the Bible is. And so they they kind of either make one up for themselves or they kind of passively inherit it from their parents or spiritual mentors or whatever. Some people will say, hey, the Bible is primarily a place where I go to get reminded of God's love and his care for me. And so, um, that's that's what I open it up and I go search out and find there. Some people will say, hey, it's a source book of doctrine and it's a source book of truth that we need to learn and we need to memorize and we need to adhere to. And in some cases, we need to defend. And then other people will say, it's it's my guidebook for life. It's my instruction manual. And so if if you read it and you obey it and you follow the rules, then then everything will turn out just fine. So. You know, okay, those other models are out there. Is there something wrong with them? 
Yeah, no, I don't think any of those models are wrong or incorrect. I think the models are incomplete. Like it's only looking at the Bible through one specific lens. And if you do that, then, you know, if you say, hey, the Bible is just for my encouragement, and my reassurance. Like, what do you do with the other 97% of Bible that doesn't seem to be talking about any of that at all? Like, right. I would say a lot of people just maybe ignore it or skim over it because they're confused and they're not really sure what to do with it. I was in a meeting once and I remember somebody saying, not that they were kind of going against our point of view necessarily, but um, I remember them saying, look, the, it's not that complicated. Just do what it says. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, wow, I hope there's a lot of places in the Bible that you are not just doing what it says, <laughs> um, because that's not going to work. Yeah. In every yeah. case. I mean, obviously there are points where we can do that. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like you say, it's incomplete. It doesn't cover the whole Bible. So um, we have to get somewhere else. These, these answers that you've said are out there. They're kind of true for parts of the Bible or when the Bible is used in specific places and in smaller ways, but what's, is there something bigger and better than these? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you you make the bold declaration, Alex, uh, early on, um, that the Bible's lifeblood is its story. And, you know, there might be some people that kind of get a, a cold shiver, you know, down their spine when they hear that, like, really? I mean, this is really about getting our theology right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now you're going to talk about, you know, a story. Right. Um, and th this is the lifeblood, really, mm -hmm. uh, of the whole Bible. Um, you're going to have to you're going to have to unpack that for us. Yeah. And that that wasn't really a word that I ever heard growing up with with the Bible. Sure, it had stories in it, but the overarching kind of framework or model for it was not as a narrative. And I think you're right. There there are probably a lot of people out there that hear story and they say, well, shoot, uh, Hansel and Gretel is a story. Like there's lots of <laughs> stories out there. That doesn't mean they're they're true. Like why why should I think of the Bible as a story? That seems mm -hmm. pretty pretty untethered, pretty insecure, pretty um, you know, <laughs> yeah, just wobbly. Like why why should I think of it as a story? And I think you know we'll we'll start unpacking that here in this episode. But I think that's the overarching framework that we can use because it's what contains all of those other smaller frameworks that we've just been talking about. Mm. Of course, the Bible does have wisdom. It does have instruction. It does have encouragement in it. But they're all contained within this narrative that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And it's all like it's our life with the Bible is all about engaging with that story, understanding where we fit into it. And um just using it as the framework that we think think about the Bible through. Yeah, Alex, you know, uh, again, going back to this idea that um, I think you said that the 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 story is like the big V8 turbo engine in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, I, it reminded me of something that you wrote or uh, referenced Eugene Peterson's Eat This Book, where he says all of the Bible's encouragement, correction, doctrine, commands, instructions and wisdom lives within the tent of its immense, sprawling, capacious narrative. There's the tent and all of those things kind of live underneath the tent. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sweep them off the table and say they're not there. It's Correct. just something to house all of them. Yes. Mm. 
Yeah, that's great. They all fit into an overarching narrative, but the big category is story mm-hmm. narrative. That that works, I think. Yep. Okay, Alex. So explain to us um, how story is the primary vehicle. Something you say in your book through which we make sense of life, and, mm. and we form our values through story. So how does an unstoried use of scripture result in distortion? Yeah, this you could go down a rabbit hole on on this. And I was reading more scientific papers than I ever thought I would writing a book about the Bible. <laughs> but like, there's just all this research coming out now about how story is how humans make sense of the world. Like neuroscientists writing about this, all sorts of people like we we just are narrative beings. We're narrative driven creatures. And, mm. you know, we have our own independent personal narratives. We have our family narratives. We have our, you know, maybe our ethnic ethnic er, uh, narratives, uh, national narratives, all these different narratives that are kind of how we make sense of things. But then there's always kind of this uh, meta narrative about where did the world come from? Like, what are we, what are humans here for? Where, where's mm-hmm. the whole kind of arc of history going? Like all of these things are narrative shaped as much as we like to think of ourselves as just assembling facts and kind of rationalizing our way into, um, you know, existence. We, we, we have to think through story. And so when we, um, when we start reading whole books and reading the Bible, as a narrative, it's when all of these smaller pieces begin to come together to tell a history of of the world and of its creator and of his his image bearers and their place within the world. Like it can become the uh, worldview shaping narrative that that is meant to be. Okay, so I'm just putting together your steps going back to even episode one and two here. You're saying get a reader's Bible, start reading whole books. And now you're saying when you read whole books and put them together, what you're going to discover is the meta narrative, the story of the Bible, and that that's the goal. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Is to to I mean, we'll we'll talk about the kind of framework that you can use for that for locating yourself within the story, no matter where you are uh, in in just a little bit here. But yeah, I, I would say like you read the Bible to orient yourself to the world, its maker, where he's driving history, what mm. your place is within that within that story. All those different things are are things that you can get out of the Bible rather than just thinking of yourself as kind of the primary narrative. And, you know, this is what I used to do, and we might talk about it further in a little bit, is like my worldview and my story was all kind of like centered on myself. I was the hero. I was the main character. And the Bible was useful insofar as I could like append pieces to myself to further <laughs> wow. advance my story. Right. Yeah. Um, and it it doesn't work that way. Like we're humans don't work that way. We have to locate ourselves inside of a bigger narrative. And uh the Bible is is able to provide that for us. Yeah, that's 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 really good, Alex. And you know, when you get into stories, you get into questions about sequencing and you know what happened in this era um gave way to what happened into another era and so what it looked like in the next era still had flavors of you know its origin but but some of that had had shifted mm-hmm. so uh, again i think what we we don't want to say that you know the christian faith 
and the Bible. It's just all airy fairy. Um, it's it's just anybody's story. And so you say uh, in your book that the story has an interpretive key. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the things that keeps the story central and us centered, you know, without um, going off the rails. So that sounds a little mysterious. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, this is this is something that I think the church is generally pretty good at doing without really realizing it. Uh, but it's called the Christocentric reading of scripture. It's it's a foundational practice. And it's something that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is what we call reading through the Jesus lens. So no no matter where you are in the narrative, reading uh, reading it in relation to the person and the revelation of Jesus. So because the Bible is a story, it it changes over time. It moves. It's not a, a flat book where every single sentence you read, no matter where you are in the story, is kind of the um, equal end all be all will of God. Right. We, we read that in the Levitical law. Right. We we see some things there that we're like, OK, that doesn't really seem to line up with things that Jesus said. And an eye for an eye doesn't really feel like it lines up with love your enemies type teaching right and so we we need to use jesus as as an interpretive key as we read to um really get in a sense of god's revelation and god's will no matter where you are in the story alex this is so huge i mean this is just huge i think for people who want to engage the bible and get wisdom get guidance right for their life i mean i think this is the thing that trips up so many people is they read something from some part of scripture. And if you have a, a little reading kind of model of the Bible, then you can get something from the first Testament and then you don't know what to do with it in the new Testament. And I just think the fact that it's a story that it's centered in Jesus kind of makes Jesus the, the, the complete interpretive key. It means we don't understand Jesus unless we understand what happened before. And yep. we understand what happened before differently because we see Jesus. And so that just can't be overemphasized, right? It's so, so crucial. And I think there's probably also people who, when they think about the First Testament, they think, yeah, there's some specific predictions about Jesus. But other than that, they're not sure how to relate it to Jesus. And you're just proposing something much deeper and richer, which is reading through the Jesus lens, which changes the flavor right? It changes how you think about all of the content in the earlier story, not just the predictions that can be enumerated and prove that it's true or something like that. It's just much richer and deeper. And I just think, man, we could spend a whole podcast and more on just what does it mean to read scripture through the Jesus lens? So thank you for making that part of your book and um, just how big an idea that is. I'm glad you're giving that to the church. Yeah. yeah, and you make an yeah, important point there, Glenn, which I think needs to be re-emphasized, which is we can't just like chop off the Old Testament, right? We can't say, yeah, reading through the Jesus lens means, you know, start with Jesus, because he didn't just kind of drop out of heaven and start a new story in uh, in the Gospels, right? He's He's so intricately tied to the First Testament and the Jewish narrative that if you mm. like divorce him from that, you get a distorted vision of who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so you need both, right? You need Jesus to inform the first Testament and you need the first Testament to inform Jesus. 
Right. Yeah. It's cool yeah. how it works both ways. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I totally agree, though, that that we should pause there just a second to say that this is becoming kind of a popular way of thinking. And I, I heard it the other day. Someone said they're in a Bible study and the person that leads the Bible study um, said, OK, we're going to start a new Bible study and we're not studying anything from the Old Testament and we're not studying anything from Paul's letters. Wow. As though this, as though this was a good thing, because yeah. This, yeah. this was kind of their view of 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 Jesus as the interpretive key, mm-hmm. and that's just way too simplistic. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay, Alex. Another another big thing that you talk about in your book is this idea that okay, the Bible's a story. It's got an overarching narrative. It's God's story of everything, if you will, and it's meant to be all encompassing of everything that happens in the world. But the Bible isn't the only story out there. There's competition, right? We we live in a place where there are lots of possible narratives we could understand as the big meaning of our lives. National ones, right? Consumer ones. I mean, there's just, there's a whole world of narratives out there of how to make sense of your life. Um, the Bible is in a, a place of trying to win over people to its story and inviting them in. Mm. I'm wondering if you think that this competition and the fact that Christians have many times not positioned the Bible as a story that can take in your whole life and give you a place within a bigger story, you think that's part of what is causing younger people um, to abandon the church and the Bible? Um, yeah. Because there there is a problem there. And this rise of the so-called nuns, people who say they don't have any religion when asked in a poll, they're just not into that 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 whole situation. Do you think this story thing has something to do with that? I would say so. You know, I this was this is chapter seven of the book, and I'm pretty sure I was writing this chapter kind of in in the middle or late stage of, of 2020 or maybe early 2021. Mm. And 2020 was a hard year, you know. You had the COVID stuff, you had election mm. stuff, you had George Floyd stuff, um, yeah. and, you know, a lot of like racial things. And you just saw so many narratives like working in people's lives, right? Narratives spun up by cable news channels, narratives spun up by, you know, whatever online forum they're reading. And you see the power of those narratives over people. Um, you know, that's not 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 to say anything about the kind of more consistent narratives about American nationalism or consumerism or, you know, basically anything that ends in ism has a narrative <laughs> attached to it. Right. Right. And, right. And I think when the Bible, when you chop it up, when you say, hey, it's all about finding verses for encouragement or verses for this or that, and you, you kind of make it small, it has no chance to stand up against more of, you know, these these powerful narratives that a lot of times we mm. don't even know we've kind of adopted and, um, you know, told our story through. Um, and so I think if, if the Bible is going to become the predominant force in people's lives that really shape their, their ethics and their imagination and their, their vision, not only of the past and present, but also of the future, it needs to be viewed through this lens of narrative. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think of the competing narratives and, you know, pick pick one, for example, you know, consumerism and the, the thought that daily you have groups of very intelligent people 
in a room who have a singular purpose, which is to send out messaging that you can't live without this. Mm-hmm. And, and and they don't approach that one dimensionally. You know, their campaigns come from every possible yeah. direction. You know, they're 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 capturing all these different beaches at one one time. And and um and and so Alex, you you make that point. If we reduce you know, the Bible to just something like, well, it's all about loving God and loving others. And oh, by the way, you can't love others until you love yourself. So we'll throw that one in there. And that's that's our narrative. You know, there it is. Um, and that's all we need. Um, we're we're going to lose. You know, that story isn't big enough yeah. to draw people in for a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, you think about the average. I mean, my generation, for sure, millennials, Gen Z, uh, their average day. How many hours are they spending on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, whatever other communities they're a part of? And then you're you're um, trying to stand up to that influence and all those narratives coming at them hour after hour, day after day with like a minimalized Bible that just kind of you throw some of the nuggets at them and try to get them to, you know, um, I don't know, incorporate them into whatever they're doing right now. Like it just there's no way that it's going to compete and those more powerful narratives. And a lot of times like more enticing narratives, if, if we're being mm. honest, like, mm-hmm. you know, a, a narrative in the Bible that says to, you know, consider others greater than yourself and, you know, self-sacrifice, all those different things, sacrificial love that oftentimes isn't, isn't super like easy for people to stomach. Um, instead they're going to Instagram or whatever Facebook groups they're a part of to get a narrative that's more, Um, you know, appeals to the flesh more, I guess I would say. We're we're still on this subject. How is the Bible a story? And, um, and, and, and what does that mean? And so someone is saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but my experience is, is that when, I do try to read, you know, maybe I read through the Bible chronologically in a year. Um, the story isn't popping off the page. So mm. can can you help us out there? Yeah. Yeah. This was a super important sort of thing for me to learn is that there's there's frameworks for segmenting the narrative. And this was when I started working for Glenn, the, the very first book he had me read was called The Six Act Drama of Scripture. And it was so eye-opening to see kind of the bird's eye view of the Bible and to see how the, the different things fit together. And so there's, there's a number of these frameworks that, that segment the Bible's narrative into, into different, um, well, segments. And uh, the six-act one has just been what's, what's most helpful for me. So the way that I lay it out in my book is act one is called God Makes a Temple. And I would say... Oftentimes this act is kind of skimmed over on the way to the Hmm. fall and the rebellion. Um, Like if you, if you ask for, you know, a a two sentence summary of the Bible or the gospel, most of the time it starts with the problem, right? We sinned Mm -hmm. short, uh, all that, but like seeing the the vision at the beginning is super important. And I, I go into some detail about how, how the opening creation story is, uh, is a temple making story where, where God intends to dwell with his image bearers. And that's his, 
that's his initial plan until until it gets derailed. So Act Two is called Rebellion, which of course is is the image bearers rebelling against this not only their their human vocation but also God's God's grand vision for the cosmos and how it's supposed to work. Act Three is called Israel's Calling, which uh, which is the rest of the Old Testament. It's you know it's Abraham and his family and their up and down hot mess of a journey for for the rest of the Old Testament. Um, which is just super important to the story. And, and as we've talked about, you just can't skip over that on the way to the New Testament. On that point, Alex, let me just say, I mean, yeah. I think I think it's another major stumbling block for people is like, look, this whole book or major part of it is about Israel. Mm-hmm. Like they're a tribe, like really? Like this is supposed to be the big story of everything. Why is so much of it about one group of people? Um not really that important in world history, you could say. Um, it just seems too small, seems irrelevant to me. Um, just the Israel thing is such a major part of the Bible. And yet, how does that work? And I think your proposal, um, you know, and others that are talking about the whole thing as a six act story or drama, it makes Israel fit into that story in a particular way related to Act One and Two. And leading into the acts at the end of the drama, it's just, again, I think it could be just transforming for people to say, oh, that's why Israel matters so much in terms of it's the bigger story and they have a major role to play. That's what's going on here. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, the title of how I title the fourth act, at least, it's called the Upside Down Victory of the Unexpected Messiah. And, mm. you know, Messiah is part of our vocabulary. It's part of our lingo. But like, what is a Messiah? What 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 was the expectation for a Messiah at that time? It's it's intricately tied to the the Israel story. Right. You don't get a full sense of who the Messiah is, what he's come for, all the expectations that are kind of pregnant in Israel for this person to come. You don't get a fully or view of that unless you read Act three and, and know what Act three is all about. Um. So Act 5 is called the already and the not yet, uh, the, this idea mm. that Christ has already won this decisive victory on the cross, and yet we're in this not yet stage where, where the full victory hasn't been achieved yet. And then uh, and Act 6 is called God Comes Home, which is this idea that, hey, the, the end of the story isn't God saying, okay, yeah, after all, plan B, we're all getting out of here, and we're all just kind of kind of live as disembodied spiritual beings up in heaven. Um, the idea is that God God sticks by his original plan, which is for, for heaven and earth to be these overlapping realms, these, you know, kind of one and the same, where where God and and his image bearers can can live together. Well, you know, as you go through those six acts, I'm just thinking that's not the version of Christianity that that a lot of people operate with. I think there's a really truncated version that people have like as you mentioned starting with the fall like i have a sin problem god sent jesus to fix it so i can leave earth and go to heaven and be with god forever that's the story that's it and that's just you're saying that's not the story yeah there's there's so much more to it that is so important for us to to not miss and I think I will I will also just mention when people say, you know, how's the Bible a story? Like there's a lot of stuff in there that's not narrative. There's a lot of non-narrative mm. books out there. 
And I would say it's it's the story told at different uh, altitudes, right? So you get narrative, you know, through Samuel Kings, and it's it's one kind of vantage point of the Israel story. Um, but then you get into Lamentations, right? Right at the, um, you know, sacking of Jerusalem, everybody's taken off into exile. And now you're at ground level, right? Seeing seeing the story through people that are sitting in the ashes of um, of the, you know, kind of ruined city. So I would say, even if it's not narrative, there are ways to tell a story through a book um, that gets you a different flavor of what's happening in the narrative. Mm, that's very cool. And just for people to know, um, I think it's worth mentioning here that we once dedicated an entire podcast to this six act framework mm-hmm. for understanding the Bible story. And if you go back to our earlier um, episodes on our website, um, then you can find that in episode number 14. Okay, so we have a six act drama in the Bible. Um, you say that that's the big framework for understanding the Bible. But the thing that people want to do with the Bible, right, is apply it. So how do you apply a story? How do those two words go together? The other thing I just want to throw out there is people oftentimes associate the Bible with the word authority. The Bible is the word of God. It has divine authority. So how does something like a story have something like authority? We don't usually put those two things together. So what about this? application, living thing, and then also the word authority. How does that work in a story framework? Yeah. And again, we could probably spend a whole episode on on this idea because we've <laughs> been talking a lot over the last couple of weeks about like right. table table the personal application bit for a little bit or kind of re rework how you're thinking about personal application. Um, but this is kind of where we're getting into living out the Bible, right? How does this actually impact the ways that I go about my everyday life? And I think it was a huge, again, paradigm shift for me to see that it's not called the six-act story of Scripture. It's called the six-act drama of Scripture. And you can read mm. a story, and you can stay outside of it, and you can observe it. But a drama is something that you have to enter into and actually perform and actually act out. And so when you look at the six-act drama of Scripture model, we're here in Act 5, right? We're on the other side of Jesus we're in this place of an already um, achieved victory, but also a not yet where where things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. I mean, any any given day, you can read the news headlines and say, yeah, we're, we're not where God wants things to be yet at this point. And yet we still have the, the victory of Jesus that we can, um, you know, springboard off of and find find solace in and, and that sort of thing. So uh, the best and most helpful way that I've thought about doing this is kind of an improvisational model. So the Bible gives us the story up to a certain point, right? It gives us the trajectory of the narrative, and then it previews the the ending. And what we do is we improvise the middle. We, we build bridges. Mm. Um, and, you know, N.T. Wright has this great uh, example of the unfinished Shakespeare act. So he says, imagine that somebody, you know, is digging around somewhere and they find this uh you know script and you know it's it's this un they determined that it's an unfinished shakespeare play like the first first five or four acts are there but then there's maybe like a rip on the page and the rest is just gone and then he says so they have a few options they could just put it in a drawer and forget about it 
or they could hire some actors to just read the script and, um, you know, leave the play unfinished. They could just kind of read it and perform it. And then once the page is ripped, like it's over, he says, or they could find Shakespearean actors, people that live and breathe Shakespeare, who understand his themes and the way that he writes and the way that he tells stories. And they could perform the first four acts and then improvise the next one based off of what they know about Shakespeare and what they've seen so far in the story. And that's that's a bit of a good parallel, I think, for what we're doing. Like, we don't wake up in the morning, open our Bible and read verbatim off the page. Okay, what should I say to my boss today during this difficult meeting? Hmm. Or how should (laughs) I handle, you know, this parent teacher conference I have for my kids who have been you know, disruptive or act, acting up at school. Like you can't just read your your lines for the day out of the Bible. There's there's an element here where we we take the trajectory of the story and we improvise in our time and place. I think wow. I think though, Alex, the key to that, the 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 piece that really stuck with me was you go and you hire Shakespearean actors mm. who are well studied. You don't go out and find the people that know a few Shakespearean quotes like to be, you know, to be yeah. or not to be. These are people that have to have been totally immersed so that they understand the author. They understand, you know, the background. They understand kind of the full the full volume of, of, of his work. He doesn't write just one way. He doesn't have one viewpoint. And and only when you've been really saturated in that mm. are you really prepared then yeah. to get onto the stage and to do that improvisation. Yeah, and I will say this this whole chapter has is kind of under the pretense that like the spirit is driving the ship here, right? Like mm-hmm. all the passages in the New Testament about we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we have the spirit. Like it's not necessarily on us to like figure it all out all the time. Like there's there's a spirit, holy spirit element here of course that's that's very important. And there's a grace and a forgiveness element here that like we're going to improvise poorly all the time. Like it's, we're not going to do it great a lot of time because we're going to get caught up in other narratives. We're going to fumble. We're going to forget what story we're a part of. Um, but grace and forgiveness is, is all over the place in this, this improvisational journey. Um, stick, sticking with that, you know, improvisation theme uh, in that whole world, whether it be, you know, improvising, you know, Comedy or or jazz is another example mm-hmm. of that. Um, there are there are some rules or at least some guardrails or guidelines yeah. for for good good improvisation, and I think those are kind of universally known. Um, there there's creativity on one hand, and then there's there's faithfulness on, on the other hand. Talk about that as it would relate to uh, to scripture storying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think jazz is a great example, right? There's this blend of creativity, but also faithfulness where uh, jazz doesn't have music in front of them. They don't have notes that they're sticking to and everybody's kind of playing their assigned parts. There's there's creativity to it. And, and God did the same thing with us. He formed us to be co-creators alongside of him. And uh, so so in jazz, you can be creative. You can use what inspires you and you can use your talents and your gifts in that space 
and and make something beautiful with with what you've been given. And I think we can do something similar as humans to say, okay, I exist in this space. I'm, uh, you know, I love cooking. Maybe I can invite people over and just use my gifts of hospitality to feed people dinner once a week. Or, hey, I'm a I'm a parent. I'm going to create a beautiful home for my kids where they feel safe and loved and valued and all these sorts of things. Or, you know, there's there's a million possibilities about how you can be creative and um, in your space in the story. But then it's also, you know, in jazz, they don't all just kind of come up on the stage and say, yeah, I'm just going to kind of play whatever I want. They, there's <laughs> this set tone, there's a key, there's a rhythm, and they all have to kind of adhere to that those ground rules, that baseline before they go off and be creative. So it kind of sets the foundation for that. And I would say that's the same thing for us. Like there is a narrative here. There are um, rules and principles and commandments and those sorts of things that we need to abide by that ground us in our creativity. So it's kind of both of those things at the same time where we need to not get carried away with one or another one or the other where we're we're so faithful that we're like robots and we're scared to do anything uh interesting or creative or um you know we're scared of uh, of doing things wrong but we also need to um like stay stick to our moorings a little bit stick to our story and and continue to return to scripture to make sure that we are following the right rhythm we're in the right key we're, we're doing things uh, the right way, you know, with, with the tone and tempo. This is pretty yeah. amazing, Alex. I think what you've done is, um, you know, N.T. Wright and others have, have introduced this idea, um, but it changes the vision of the Christian life, right? I mean, so instead of just rote obedience or something like that with relation to the Bible, it kind of frees the Bible up to be what it is, the story so far. We live in the unfinished space of that story, looking for Act 6, which is still ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And it makes the Christian life literally a work of art. I mean, drama is one of the fine arts. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you've just moved the Bible into a more exciting and beautiful space mm -hmm. than the vision that I think many people have of it as a hard book, um, a moralistic book or something like that into a space where we can bring ourselves to it. We're entering into a story. We're in a drama and our own creativity matters. Faithfulness matters, but creativity also matters. And it's just a beautiful vision of the Christian life. Yeah, it was a game changer for me. Like understanding, again, going back to kind of my previous framework was I am the Christmas tree and I can hang some Bible ornaments on myself. And kind of, you know, make myself make myself more beautiful that way. Like just overhauling that that idea of um, you know, I'm not the main wow. character, and I'm a supporting character in this drama that where Christ is the main character, and he's the one moving things forward and taking taking the story where it needs to go. And my job is to just creatively and faithfully play a supporting role as 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 well as I can. Again, with the Spirit's help with grace, with forgiveness in community. Like I'm not doing this all on my own. I've got mm. people around me who are also on this stage with me. There's so many elements to this that just make the Christian life more, like you said, artful, inspired, interesting, fun in a lot of ways, like using your gifts and your talents that God has given you to play a role in the story. There's, there's just so much there that can 
excite mm-hmm. Christians, I think, more than more than we typically are. And then the last thing I would say is the the Shakespeare play um, analogy breaks down just a little bit because we do kind of see where the ending of the story is. Or yes, the final act yes. Is. Mm-hmm. Um, we we get some glimpses and some previews of that, and so we don't have to kind of improvise without really being sure how things are are set up mm-hmm. to kind of conclude. Um, and and knowing the way that the story ends also very much informs how we act in the in the middle. That's an awesome phrase, though, Alex. I need to hang more Bible verses on myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey, just 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 a word of clarification. You know, if someone says I'm I'm gonna quickly after this rush to my concordance and see if the word improvisation is is found okay. yeah. you know in, in scripture. Um we'll, we'll save you the time. It's yeah. it's not there. But you know, Jesus was improvising constantly whenever he was saying, You've you've heard it said, you know, this, mm. but I but I say to you, that was that, that was improvisation that was mm. taking place. And I I was thinking of the um, the parable. I think it's usually called the parable of the talents. I think it's in Matthew and and in Luke, you know, about a, a landowner who goes away on a journey and he calls three of his key servants, you know, that know him. And he says, I, I want to, you know, I, I'm going to leave some wealth with you and and I'd like you to do some creative things with it. And so one gets five bags of gold, another two, another one. Um, But what's kind of unstated but implied is that the servants have the freedom and the responsibility to invest wisely. Mm, Um, The master doesn't tell them. And yet they have a sense that they they, they know that they can't step outside the, the master's bounds. And they know that because they've lived with the master. They understand the master, but there is there is within that framework the freedom and to indeed improvise. They 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 see themselves as, as co-creators. They've been called into this thing to be active and to create and to leave something good, you know. And then the one obviously buries his talent, and you know somebody maybe in you know comparison just saying, well. I'm I'm just going to hold on to my salvation and cherish it, and you know, yeah. um, wait wait to go to be with uh, with Jesus. Yeah. So the 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 improvisation is there. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Just just the word isn't. Yeah, and I would say you know maybe my last thing is uh, there's kind of this line of theology maybe maybe taken from the fact that Jesus's new resurrected body ha- still had scars in it. Um, there's this line of theology that says, okay, if, if the end of the story is God coming back and establishing a kingdom here, there's, there's an element where he's going to incorporate the beautiful and the good and the true things we've done in this in-between time into the, this eternal new creation. So it's not just, Hey, you're, you're, uh, you know, doing creative faithfulness, you're improvising just to bide your time. You're actually you're doing something that might be everlasting and and built into God's eternal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And like, what a cool vision for that. Like, mm-hmm. I think N.T. Wright uses the analogy of like looking up at this massive cathedral, you know, beautiful, spectacular, awe-inspiring and saying, hey, that that brick right up there, that's the one that I put in. Like, there's there's something that you're doing here that God will somehow mysteriously incorporate into the new creation vision, which is just like, 
crazy. Super cool. So Alex, it seems like given the the quick and very positive response to your book already, I mean, it was just released, yeah. but it, it went right to the number one new release in the category of Christian ministry on Amazon. And isn't that a sign that people are indeed looking for something fresh and new and better with the Bible? And um, I think it's already clear that your book um, is going to help people because they're looking for something like that. So is that what you were thinking about when you were writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had my own personal experience with the Bible until I until I met you guys. <laughs> and, you know, over and over again, over the years, we've met more and more people who have had similar experiences, who grew up in the church, who have been around the Bible and are just not connecting with it in the way that they feel like they're supposed to be. Um, or it's, you know, this frustrating, confusing, boring, oftentimes experience. And I think we're seeing that the fact that, you know, the Bible, a book called the Bible reset is doing as well as it is the fact that this podcast called the Bible reset has done as well as it is. There's a lot of people who aren't, you know, satisfied with the way things, things are going. And I think really my goal with, with the book is to issue kind of this disruptive invitation to, to mm. something new that uh, disrupts the things that aren't working for people and then gives them uh, charts, the core charts, a course to, to something different. And, and I'm encouraged to see that people are picking it up and that uh, hopefully they'll be getting a lot out of it. Thanks so much, Alex. It's a gift. And um, again, we're anxious for people to join us on this, this pioneering journey and to accept the, disruptive invitation so hey thank you for joining us for this three-part series um again we'd been on a hiatus and we're going to be on another hiatus hopefully a shorter one um we are in the middle of some major organizational shifts that um we hope to announce by year's end but these shifts are going to position us in a way to be more expansive than we've been in a long time, which will include uh, uh, bringing you the Bible Reset podcast on a more regular basis. So thank you. And uh, in the meantime, we invite your prayers as we, uh, you know, grow towards, you know, IFBR 2.0. So stay tuned. And um We'll, we'll let you know and see you on the next one.